Hi, hello, welcome. 欢迎大家 to another episode of Hot and Sour Soup for the Soul. Today we are joined with Amy Kuo. Amy is a film producer, founder of Animon Studios, a fervent advocate for women, LGBTQ, and POC communities, as well as second-generation Taiwanese Chinese American. Amy founded Animon Studios to build a more inclusive future through animation. In the process. She also created a movie production bootcamp for underrepresented young professionals seeking to break into the hyper-competitive animation industry. Her latest animated short film, Let's Eat, chronicles the relationship between an immigrant mother and her daughter as the two of them navigate their new lives in America. The film was crowdfunded through a successful Kickstarter and brought to life with a team of over 150 volunteers. Prior to her career in animation, Amy was a computer science graduate from UC Berkeley and a product manager at an enterprise cloud company in the Bay Area. During this time, she moonlighted in digital animation and landed a career-transforming opportunity for herself, working on blockbusters including Black Panther, Ready Player One, and Thor. In this episode, we chat with Amy about grit in the face of adversity, harnessing opportunity. And creating an outsized impact through sharing success. Stay tuned. Hi, Amy. Thanks for coming on to the show today. When I first heard your story, I was mesmerized. So it's a real treat to be able to share it with the audience today. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. You know, I've it's always a pleasure to speak to the Asian American experience and LGBT as well. Thank you for doing all this amazing work. So before I get started, to give you a layout of our episode, it's going to be a three-part act. We're going to start with your past, do a little bit of introspection. We're going to move into your present, what you're working on today,、um, perhaps a little bit of reflection, and then we'll move into your future and do some prospecting as it relates to both your Asian American identity, how it's played a role in your past, present, and future,、um, along with how. Elements of that heritage have been a north star in the work that you do in both your personal and professional life. Great. Yeah, let's get started. All right. So to kick off with your past, Amy, can you give us a walk down memory lane and share a little bit about your background, your family, and your upbringing? Yeah, love to. So my mom is actually from Guangzhou in China, and my dad is from Taiwan, and they met in San Diego when they were going to college together to university, and then that was how me and my two brothers. Came into this world, and growing up, it was really interesting because I was actually diagnosed with ADHD as well、mm-hmm. as auditory processing disorder at a very early age. I actually didn't know how to speak until I was six, so I had to、wow. go through speech therapy and things like that. And so this actually led to my mother making the decision to not teach me Chinese or speak to me in Chinese because she was afraid that I wouldn't be able to handle English and Chinese at the same time. But growing up, while 
handling speech therapy and being on medication and going to a special education school. Like, you know, I also went to Chinese school to get insights in the Chinese culture and try to speak Chinese, which didn't really happen. <laughs> uh, Chinese language is not my strong suit. Um, but my family, uh, my dad did a lot of work in China and Taiwan. So we actually moved to Taiwan for two years and living there. Was this and before you turned six or after? This Were you was, speaking was like, I was about like eight at this okay. point. I was, in, I was in fourth grade, but like, you know, I actually didn't assimilate very well into, to, into the school that we, we were sent to, which was a Taipei American school, which I fondly remember as being a school for a bunch of kids and the kids of diplomats. So mm -hmm. yeah, it was, it was not my most favorite time because it's funny because like as a child, like as a, as a East Asian or like an Asian kid, you think that you would fit in better, right? Cause like, oh wow, like, you know, all these Asian kids and things like that. But it was, I was actually bullied and left out because of my ADHD. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like how I was- How would you communicate with your pals before you learned to speak when you turned six? How would you connect with your peers and your family? I think it was really frustrating as a kid. I don't think I did communicate, but the one person who I really, who really understood me was of course my mother. So, mm -hmm. but like I was able to speak and slowly understand things. And once I learned the ability to talk, I was like, you know, a chatterbox and, yeah. you know, asking for Make things. up for lost time. Uh, make up for lost time. Yeah. That was like really, definitely really hard as a child, not being able to communicate and I think being misunderstood a lot. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I was a very unhappy kid because of that. Were you a very observant kid as well? Yes, I was definitely a very observant kid. I think because of like my lack of abilities to communicate, I communicated, like I was able to observe things at a very high detail, understanding body language a lot more, using, yeah, body language cues, using context a lot more to understand certain, like, you know, situations and things like that. Mm -hmm. So. So um, that was like very useful as a child and also to now, for sure. Right. And, and through these geographic moves, what was your relationship with your heritage like? How were you connected to that Asian American upbringing? So I'm actually very, throughout growing up, I was very proud to be Taiwanese and Chinese American. Uh, moving to Taiwan, I don't think my experience at that school deteriorated uh, like my identity as a Chinese American. I just thought the kids were mean and the teachers. Mm -hmm. um, and so like because like in Taiwan, uh, it was really great to have all this food and my grandmother loved me. And, and I think um, in my formative years in middle school, and especially high school, like I think I feel really blessed that a lot of my peers did not bully me for my culture and my heritage. They, if anything, they celebrated it. So I would bring dumplings and like fried rice or things like that to school. And I would, you know, share it with them and they'd be like, this is so amazing. And mm -hmm. I, I would tell them like, it's even better when it's fresh. And so they would come over, <laughs> we would have like pan fried dumplings and they're like, oh my God, this is so good. And then on some occasions with some food, we're like, oh, like, I'm not a huge fan of this. I'm like, that's fine. Because you don't have to like everything I eat. Kind of like how I don't really appreciate your peanut butter on celery, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and some like, for you. <laughs> yeah, no, no, not a fan. So, <laughs> so, like, you know, it was good. And, you know, we would watch anime together. We would, you know, 
uh, celebrating Chinese New Year. It was it was a good time. I'm very thankful because I know this is not the experience of every you know Asian American or person of color right uh, in the United States, and so I'm very grateful to to have that with me. Yeah, you never had to downplay your culture. Maybe not in obvious ways, uh, but I was. It was strong enough where today I don't feel ashamed for being Chinese or Taiwanese Chinese. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny too what you say about pot stickers and how that is a great unifier because I completely share that experience. <laughs> in speech and debate in middle school, we had a prompt where we had to take our peers step by step through the creation of something. And that something for me was a pot sticker. And at the end of that walkthrough, brought in some Ling Ling from Costco, and it was a hit. Something about filling in a dough wrapper is just something that makes people so sing for reasons that confound me, but I'm glad for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, dumplings are, I think, universal because Russia has their own version of dumplings, like Europe has their own version of dumplings, and you've got like Southeast Asia has their own version of dumplings. So anything like like stuffed dough, right, is just pretty much universal and loved. Mm -hmm. so. so this segues well into the present. You were alluding to earlier that you went to UC Berkeley and studied computer science. Riddle me this, how do you move from computer science and undergrad into the founder of an animation studio today? <laughs> well, um, I originally studied computer science at UC Berkeley because I wanted to get into video games. I love playing video games, it's my jam, still play them. So studying computer science, I discovered that there, there was a class there, an animation class called UC Bug, University of California, Berkeley Underground Graphics Group or something. And that's where I learned that, wow, you can actually do 3D animation as a job. Like people get paid to do this. Like this is a career. And so I, you know, that's how I discovered that I wanted to do animation. Though I was really discouraged by it when I tried to apply to Pixar's university program and I got mm -hmm. rejected. So I was like, oh, I don't know how to move forward from this. Like, I don't know. So I graduated UC Berkeley and went into tech and I actually became a product manager because coding is not my strong suit. It's like how I don't like writing essays. For some reason, I just can't write things out of my mind. I like to review and plan things, but yeah, writing code is not my thing. So I became a product manager at a tech company called Workday. Mm -hmm. And I was there for about a year. Then I wasn't happy. <laughs> and after lots of soul searching and asking myself what I want to do day to day, things like that, I discovered that what I really want is that I want to be surrounded by creative people who are telling stories. That's when I decided to quit tech, to mm -hmm. go study animation. But I didn't go to art school. Art school is expensive. Um, art school can cost 200 grand, and that was not something that I wanted to invest in. So I decided to go to a night class at San Francisco State University for about a year. And that's where I met my director for the film I just wrapped up, Let's See, uh, Dixon. And together, since the program wasn't as extensive as we would like it to be, we actually took it upon ourselves to actually create our own projects, to create our own animations. And that led us to creating Let's Eat, mm -hmm. which is 
a journey. <laughs> yeah. Of it's it's like it, it it's it's like really incredible uh how let's eat started because we you know we were at a convention sharing our first um animation called the J9000. It's about 40 seconds long. It took us 3 months to make with three people. And we were showing it and people were giving really good feedback. But one group actually challenged us, like, you know, this is really good for only being in a year in school. Mm-hmm. But I bet you could do better. And we we're like, oh, my God, that's a challenge. Are we going to take this challenge on, you know? And then me and Dixon, you know, like we look at each other. And we're like, let's do it, which we make. And I said, well, since we all love food, we should make something about food. Mm-hmm. And then Dixon went into his little creative corner and thought about, you know, what is what does food mean to me? So Dixon is um, Asian, he's Chinese American. Mm-hmm. And so for Dixon, what food meant to him was family. Yeah. Which, well, you know, which really spoke to me. And so when he first pitched the idea of Let's Eat, it made me cry. <laughs> That's how Let's Eat started. Before we dive more into Let's Eat, I want to backtrack real quick to what you mentioned earlier about taking that time when you were at work day to ask yourself, am I happy? And if I'm not happy, what am I going to do about that? For those people who are in a similar position now, who maybe are in a career that they're not totally pumped up to wake up and do, what actionable steps of advice do you have to share with them? Oh my goodness. Well, for me, I was like that person where I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to walk out of my apartment to go to work because I felt unmotivated. I think someone put it in a really great way. I felt like I did not have anything else to learn. Like I didn't want to learn anymore. And I think for me, that was like, wow, that's not you at all, Amy. Like you're always about learning. There's something wrong here or there's something like needs to change. And so for me, I think think what really saved me was having a really strong support system at my workplace Mm -hmm. um, and also in friends in general. And so one of my coworkers actually sort of like, you're always talking about animation. Why don't you actually pursue that? And I was like, let me think about it. Because <laughs> like there's this thing in the back of my mind where like, you know, I can hear my mom just saying like, that's not a viable, <laughs> like, you know, job. <laughs> like, you know, you work so hard. You went to school for four years. How could you leave your job, <laughs> you know, for some, like art? Yeah. And how so, they have a permanent voice in your head. I know. Like, I, I just, know I can just hear her, like, she, yeah, I just hear <laughs> yeah. her saying, like, put your jacket on, like, you know, wear some makeup, put, fix your hair. I just, that's just <laughs> permanently in my head. But, like, for me, so then I was just like, oh, I, you know, then I really thought about animation. And then, so then, like, things I did was, and so I took was like, okay, well, I did a ton of research in animation. And I guess this doesn't speak to everyone because, like, not everyone knows what they want to do, right? So, like, I think what I recommend for those people would be to find something that really motivates you. Like, what is your purpose? Purpose being, like, maybe it's to help others in a way that it's about talking to them or motivating them, you know, finding their little niche. But going back, you know, I studied animation in the way that it's like, what is animation about? What kind of stories do they tell? Uh, What kind of environment are they in? At the time, my ex-girlfriend was actually working at Pixar. Mm -hmm. And so she connected me to uh, several artists there that I was just like interested in the position that they're working in. 
which is like being a character technical director. So I was talking to them, what's your job like? How do you communicate? What exactly is it that you do? And that gave me a lot of insight to like how they work. And that was really great and motivated me enough to like, okay, I'm going to quick tech so then I can go pursue this because there's not enough research to ever, you know, make you ready for an entirely different industry. Mm-hmm. Like some, at some point, I think you just have to like take a leap of faith and just do it. Bet on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Bet on yourself. And like, and I think like in, in all the experience that I've had thus far, like, you know, no matter, well, hopefully you had the financial standing and things like that to do it. But like, no matter what happens, like you have to believe in yourself that if whatever you try doesn't work out, it brings you closer to where you actually want to be. It's like dating, right? Dating or like, you're like, oh, like this isn't person worked out or oh, like they smelled or snored or something like that. And that didn't work out for me. <laughs> but I learned that I don't like people who snore next to me. So I'm going to Yeah, the law of large numbers and statistics. If the probability of something being a hit is X, the more times you do it, the more likely you are to hit that critical nest where you can actually reach that level of probability. Yeah, exactly. But also, it's almost like a, a great thing because there is a huge benefit to knowing what you don't like as well as what you do like. Mm-hmm. it's like knowing your strengths and weaknesses are too right that's a huge benefit to know your weaknesses so then you can find ways to strengthen yourself so take a leap of faith yeah that would be that. my advice it's yep. scary but you can do it so for people who are considering making that career pivot one it's talking to people who are doing what it is that you want to be doing see if it's actually something that strikes your fancy two it's if you can find the time to hone this new skill that will allow you to access that new profession, then it's probably quite telling that it's something that you might want to pursue in the long term. And then third is to bet on yourself. And it worked out pretty well for Amy. (laughs) It did. Yeah, I was very lucky, (laughs) for sure. Yeah. So going into Let's Eat. Yeah. And the tear jerking story that Dixon shared with you (laughs) that catalyzed this film So tell us more about that. What about the synopsis that he gave got you to feel those emotions? Oh my gosh. Uh, Well, he actually portrayed the whole story, but I'll give you a synopsis of what the film is, um, which is that it is about a Chinese American family. It's a mother and a mother who immigrated from China and her American born daughter. And it is about them growing up and growing apart. And if I could describe the feeling of the film, it's it's like a meditation of life. So hopefully y'all get to see it this year. Yeah, I'm excited too. And I'm sure the listeners are as well. How many hours did you guys put into this film? I just feel like most people don't understand the amount of labor that goes into animation, even a short film. The film that you see before Frozen, you know, by Pixar, the three minute clip <laughs> probably took months, years. You tell me. So... Without getting into too much detail about every step it takes to make an animation, uh, it took us about three, over three and a half years to make the film. From Dixon like writing out the treatments to the final renders and compositing. Uh, three and a half years, we had 152 volunteers. Wow. Teammates, I should say. We had 152 teammates. On average, each person put about 15 hours a week. And then me and Dixon alone put in about 60 to 80 hours a week. Uh, mm-hmm. We were on it full time as director and producer. So how many hours is that? Uh, I don't know. Definitely in the 10,000s. Someone do the mental math and let us know. 
<laughs> you got your 100 some volunteers, you and Dixon working overtime. Yeah, that's a lot of hours. This is a lot of hours. Yeah, lots of time, lots of love. What's something about animation that would surprise people? Well, I guess on the topic of how much work it goes into it. So for, I will tell you how many hours Pixar puts into work. Mm-hmm. So there's this thing called frames and that depicts how many frames there are to make an animation, right? Mm-hmm. There are about 24 frames per second. So we have to do 24 individual drawings per second. So there's sort of 24 per second, right? So if we did, if let's calculate how much money it would take to make one minute. Okay. Um, so there's 24 frames per second, right? So then times that by 60 seconds, which is, so there's 14 or 1,440 frames in a minute. Mm-hmm. If you times that, let's say if it took an animator a week to animate four frames, it would take them about 360 weeks to animate one minute. Wow. If that gives you any indication, that's how yes. much work goes into animation. That's shocking. I th- When you said an animator over the course of a week and you s- started with four, I thought you were going to say like 400 frames. No, four frames a week is average, you'd say, for an animator. Depends on what kind of shot it is, but it could be four to 20 frames for a feature film. For a TV show, it could be about around 100 or 400. And that is like really low quality animation. You know, mm-hmm. that's what you would see for like anime. That's why yeah. anime, like you're like, oh, why are there like heads not moving and stuff? It's like it's that's to save time and money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to get a short film out, it is a true labor of love. It takes many, many weeks, many, many years. Oftentimes, right. it takes a lot of delegation too to be running an animation studio and making sure that the 100 and some so teammates that you have are working on the frames that they should be, are working at the pace that they should be. So how have you learned to delegate being the founder of Animon Studios? My goodness. Um, that is a loaded question because there, as I think with a lot of companies out there, like people probably can relate is that, you know, you have a person at the top, which would be the producer usually. And the producer, for those who don't know, is basically in charge of making sure that the animation happens on the business level, taking care of the budget, taking care of the schedule, making sure that there are enough resources and uh, people power to make it happen as well as like if they are overachieving they you know making sure that the team culture is good uh, mm-hmm. making sure it's healthy and so for me I had a team an amazing team of production coordinators so my production team that helped me manage the artists and mm-hmm. so they were taking notes they were handing out schedules they were communicating with artists to see how they were doing mentally because a lot of these are volunteers who have part-time or full-time jobs or at, or at school. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how we delegated. And a lot of it is honestly communication, making them understand how they fit into the big picture. Because I think for animation, it's in, with any big company, right? It's really easy to get lost and be like, why do I matter? How are you able to remind people of why they matter? And perhaps even, you know, your more inner circle, your producer, your co-founder, your production assistants. Um, how do you help ground them in the work that they're doing and make sure that they are committed for the three and a half years that Let's Eat has been in production? So kind of explaining like the whole pipeline, like, you know, how it all comes together. Then like, because people then really process like, oh, okay. So like me doing this fast can like really help us save money and time so that we'll be able to market this thing or have our film out at this time and things mm-hmm. like that. And so people, you know, become, I think, 
pretty gung-ho or at least very understanding like okay so this is where they're coming from just being very clear with your intentions instead of telling people to do things without reason i think that is something that i personally don't enjoy like just being told what to do and so then i like to give people a lot of context so then they're just like oh i understand that and i understand why this other team needs this so that i can help them out yeah so for you part of delegation is making sure that everyone sees the north star and is aligned on what that north star is yeah exactly that's a great way to put it love that so okay Animon Studios and Let's Eat, two parts of a whole. Can you walk us through how you and Dixon decided to start Animon Studios from having the idea for Let's Eat? Me and Dixon started Let's Eat because we wanted to get jobs. We wanted to get experience in a, in a professional animation pipeline. And so we thought, oh, why don't we bring other people with us? Because the to create an animation film has a lot of overhead that most people are not willing to do or can't do because it just takes so much work. And so when we created Anima Studios, we created, we decided like, you know, here, we're going to create a culture where we can give people the platform so that they can actually gain very valuable experience with working with others in a professional pipeline where how they have to delegate, you know, certain files in a certain way, uh, how to learn to communicate with management, how to communicate with their peers, how to problem solve under like a tight deadline. Mm -hmm. And I'm really proud to say that, you know, we were always equal opportunists and we really stuck to that because our team was extremely diverse. Yeah. Diversity is not just a part of the film and the message that you're spreading through animation. It's also embedded in Animon Studios. Yeah, and most of our management were women. So that was also very exciting. With the team that you have built around this film, you're building the pipeline too for future recruits to the larger production studios that may have not had as much ethnic representation before. I will say that I think in a lot of corporations, there is this the idea of meritocracy where we're like oh we're just going to choose the best candidate and i think what a lot of people don't realize is that if they're going to strive for diversity they have to take chances on people of color or those in marginalized communities because if we're like we i think get into a vicious cycle where and I think that's why probably Animal Studios was so diverse is because we took so many chances on so many people of color because I think coming from myself I'm like well I didn't go to art school or like you know I had friends who didn't grow up with a tv where they got to watch cartoons as a kid or like we didn't have enough money to to paint like or like our parents didn't even know that painting was a thing Mm-hmm. And and so like these people are getting off to a rough start. And so when you come across candidates who are very hardworking but don't have the vernacular or the vocabulary to express, you know, this is why they love animation so much, or they don't have that story of like, when I was four years old, I knew I wanted to be an animator. But they they don't have that story because they might have been just trying to survive their day to day back then. Right. So I think in big groups and corporations, I think it's really important where we see beyond the candidate and give them that chance. Yeah, conventional indicators of success. We need to broaden that field of evaluation a little bit more. That I, this yeah, actually for sure. reminds me of um, the marshmallow experiment. Have you heard of the marshmallow not. experiment? So some time ago, uh, psychologists set up a clinical study where they had children 
younger children, like toddler age, put into a room individually, and then they were given one marshmallow and told, you can have one marshmallow now, or if you hold off on eating this marshmallow, when I come back like 10 or 15 minutes later, I'll give you two. Then it's up to the child to decide if they want that instant gratification or if they are you know, willing to invest some time to get a higher return. And for a long time, the idea was, okay, well, the child who waited for two marshmallows is going to do better in the long run when they're 35 and working a corporate job. They're going to have that tenacity and that investment in the long term to where they're willing to put in the work and have that higher ROI. So there was this conclusion drawn that, okay, children who waited for two marshmallows were going to do better in life. Um, But recently, there's been a wrench thrown into this equation because then you have the consideration of, okay, the child is more inclined to wait for the two marshmallows if they know that the marshmallow that they have in front of them is secure and the two that are being promised are for sure going to come in. But for kids who see a hot dog in front of them, but they don't know if it'll still be there like 30 seconds later, because that's the environment that they grew up in, they're going to be less inclined to wait that 10, 15 minutes because, you know, food insecurity is a real thing for them. So there's more dimensions to what promise and what success can look like. Yeah, I I think that scenario definitely applies to here, right? Where like people had to sometimes struggle more or like, you know, culturally just like act differently because it's sort of like they came from a place where like, you know, things weren't as available. And I think we have to like understand that. Like I actually was recently in an interview and I was asked, and it, it seems like such a harmless question where it's just like, oh, as a kid, what did you watch? Mm-hmm. And now thinking about it more, it's like my answer to that question was like, I didn't watch TV as a kid because I didn't know that was an option. It wasn't available to me or like it wasn't something that my parents encouraged or discouraged. Like I was discouraged to watch TV. But then that got me thinking, I was like, wait, that question implies that you think that as a child, that person had access to TV. What makes you think yeah. that they had access to TV? What makes you think that they had access to, um, to cable? To, to cable That's expensive. Or was able to even have the environment to be able to watch TV in peace. So there's like a lot of assumptions there. So yeah. like, I was just like, wow, like such a harmless question. But at the same time, it's really, it's really telling. Totally. And when you're confronted by a question that is totally unrelated to the your lived experience, it can throw you off of your balance. And perhaps like the eloquent answer that they're expecting from their potential animator, it's not going to come out of the mouth of someone who is really qualified, but didn't live the history of of their interviewer. Yeah, exactly. I'm hoping to give feedback to that company and be like, hey, just FYI, question that you might want to be evaluate. So while we were talking about your present and Animon Studios, <laughs> we fled into the future. So now that we are in this chapter of our conversation, um, I do want to hear more too about what your plans for the next 12 months are with Animon Studios um, to continue building this culture of diversity and making sure that those folks who have been traditionally underrepresented in animation have a chance to break through and build the foundation to pursue a full-time career in it. That's a lot. Um, (laughs) So I, for me, Animon Studios is, I would like to say, is um, a personal project that blew up into something much bigger. And it is in a way not, it is not sustainable for me to actually manage because I'm not getting paid for it. It was something to boost my portfolio. But Animon Studios as like a 
culture and a thing where to help people, students, most and upcoming professionals to gain experience to enter the animation industry is something that I definitely want to keep up. Where hopefully, you know, that's this is something that I want to integrate in different animation groups out there who want to help marginalized communities, you know, such as like women in animation. Uh, their goal mm-hmm. is to get equality by like 2025, getting women at the 50% mark. But for me personally, I'm currently taking a break. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, I've been going full throttle for like four years. Um, I actually just finished interviewing with Pixar. I did not get the job. Actually, I've been interviewing with them for like six months. It's been a ride, uh, but it was really fun. And I plan to keep on interviewing with them, which hopefully be in the next few months. So, okay, let's envision Amy 12 months from now, June of 2021. What's new with Let's Eat? What's new with your profession and animation? Um, if this were the best case scenario, I hopefully Let's Eat would have gotten Oscar shortlisted. So right now we're currently applying to more than 50 film festivals and just kind of going through the motions. And then hopefully I will have a job at Pixar being very happy and just doing what I love doing, which is telling authentic stories about the marginalized community. Yeah, and, and helping helping women, you know, see the potential as well as people of color and the LGBT community. Yeah. What do you want people who view Let's See to take away from the film? And when will it be available for GA? Oh, man. For Let's See, I mean, your takeaway. Actually, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm going to leave it up to you. I, I think it's amazing to like everyone who's seen it has a different takeaway depending on what's your relationship with your parents or with your guardians and the people that you grew up with so love to hear your take once you see it which will hopefully be in november of this year depending on how covid plays out are you guys planning to release in theaters or not theaters Uh, we're just gonna post it on youtube vimeo okay because like this is a story where it was made for everyone and so we want to make it available to everyone yeah yeah, accessible. Exactly. Great. What did you walk away from watching the film and creating the film? What's the gift that Let's Eat has given you? Oh my god, that is also a loaded question because I'm getting emotional thinking about it. <laughs> I I recently had a, a virtual rap party with my team and I think this thing that I told them, I, I've learned so many things. This this project has thrown everything at me. It, it's thrown me into like disappointment. It's thrown me into joy. It's thrown me into me creating a contract with stakeholders and having that contract withdrawn. I've lost friends. I've gained friends. The most valuable thing I gained from it was being able to work with my beautiful, smart, amazing, talented team for three and a half years. That was the best part. Yeah. That community yeah. is the genesis of this film and this animation studio. Yeah, I, the, the team was amazing and I wouldn't have it any other way. And I think that should just be a thing of life where it's not about the end product, it's about the journey and who's there with you. And that's so poetic because your film too, it's about family, whether it be through blood or through self-selection. And here you have built this community that's also a family and is built around people who trust in each other, who support each other, believe in each other, and chose to work together with each other. Yeah, I mean, it's still amazing that, you know, our team isn't as active anymore, but people are still sharing resources with each other about how to find jobs and advocating for teammates and that's pretty incredible uh, they're still looking out for each other 
despite everything that's going on. Yeah. It sounds yeah, like you've really. built a really beautiful family and you've led by example. It was a team effort. That's for sure. To wrap us up, Amy, can you share with us one motto that you're taking with you over the next 12 months as you embark on this journey to getting Oscar nominated and landing that job at Pixar, which we all know that you are going to land? <laughs> Thank you for the, for the, for the faith. Hmm. I think, honestly, it's just about being kind to yourself. That's the motto I would, I'm taking with me for the next year and also for the rest of my life, being kind to myself. Yeah. I love that. We're so compassionate with the people that we love, and yet sometimes we forget to share that same compassion with ourselves. Exactly. It's repeated over and over again, but I strongly believe you can't take care of others if you haven't taken care of yourself, especially now with the Black Lives Matter movement and mm-hmm. to, to acknowledge that it is a, it, you can be tired as an ally. It is exhausting because you're being a shield for the Black community from having them having to be exhausted and having to explain themselves over and over and over again. I think in all of this, be kind to yourself. (laughs) The journey that you have lived through the past few years is a testament to how far you can go betting on yourself, even if it means 70 to 80 hours a week of working on a project. I I would not recommend that. Do not work 80 hours a week. We'll see what you say when you're Oscar nominated, Amy. Then you're like, worth it. Way worth it, yes. 80, 90, 100. <laughs> it, is, it is not worth it. Don't do it. I, I don't care how many Oscars you win. Don't do it. <laughs> we can't wait to see the film, hopefully, in November of this year. And to also just follow along for Let's Eat's journey through all the film festivals. We'll leave all the links to the projects that Amy has mentioned in the show notes. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. And that does it for our show today. As always, thank you, listener, for tuning in. And if you enjoyed our show, please sound off on Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from you. For those of you who want more of Hot and Sour Soup for the Soul, be sure to check out our site, www.thebabebrigade.com, where you can get the full multi-sensory experience, which goes beyond the audio that you're listening to right now. Until next time, goodbye. 再见. Toodaloo.